We're in Matthew chapter 21, and we are starting a new series, um, sub-series, you, sh- you should call it. Uh, we're, we've been going through the book of Matthew now for a long time, and the um, kind of big idea, or the, the name of the, the entire series we're doing is called Messiah, and so we're, we're focusing in here on verse, uh, chapters 21, 22, 23, and we're calling this King of Jerusalem. King of Jerusalem. So what I want to do is read the verses that we're going to be looking at today, and then after we read, um, we'll pray and then go through it. So let's all stand, and we'll read this together. We want to stand just in honor of of God's Word. Matthew 21, starting at verse 1. It says, Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus said to the disciples, Say to them, go into the vill- saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and, it, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on the on their cloaks. I'm sorry, they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. That's the cloaks, not both animals. Um, verse eight. And then the crowd saw their spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before them and that followed them were shouting, "Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest!" And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, It is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Verse 15, And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, <clears throat> they were indignant. And they said, Do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you, have you never read out of the mouths and infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of there to the city of Bethany and lodged there. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that... You are, throughout this entire study of Matthew, (coughs) revealing yourself to us over and over just how great and glorious you are. And so, I pray that this morning would be no different as we see in the text who you are and what you've done for us and just how amazing um, your kingship is, that we would be all inspired and changed by this. Let your word come forth and do what you promised it would do, change us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. So, <clears throat> just a bitter review for those of you that might have been here last week. Last week as we're looking at chapter 20, one of the things that we saw as we're ending is we're seeing the nature of the servanthood of Christ. And right before he tells us about his servanthood, you'll notice right there in chapter 20, verse 17, um, there's that kind of turn in the text where it gets really, really serious in the text. In verse 17 it says, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, and that is really a huge turning point for us in the book of Matthew. Um, All the way up until now, there's been what's kind of been known as the messianic secret. Jesus would do a healing. Jesus would do something for people. And he'd say, don't say anything. Be quiet. This is it. Well, this, this verse 17 where it says, and Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. That's where he sets his face. Luke says it sets his face like flint. And he is determined now, without question, to be completely obedient to the will of the Father, which is, Jerusalem is not just a place, it's not just a destination, but a destiny. And I am going to, without a doubt, be 100% obedient to the will of my Father. Jerusalem is the place that when I go there, I know I'm going to die. And so it says here that he is going up to Jerusalem, signaling and signifying to us that Jesus is going to be completely obedient to the will of the Father, all the way to the point of death. And so when we see right here in 21.1, it says now they're drawing near to Jerusalem, we are seeing here that Christ is being obedient to the will of the Father. Now, we've entitled this, this little subsection, King of Jerusalem. 
And so what I want us to do as we're looking at some, some attributes of this particular king that's going to be shown to us in Matthew ch- chapter 21, uh, more than likely some of these things about Jesus, who our king is, are going to be review for you. And so what I've been um, hoping would happen as we see this, the motivation that I want to kind of come out of this for us all, is that as we see this breathtaking awe-inspiring, life-transforming picture of our King Jesus, that it would transform us as we go out and worship our our, our great King with our lives. Um, Now, I don't know what your perception of kings are and how they might have been shaped. You could have uh, had your, your, your perception of what kings are shaped by different movies. Maybe you're really into Downton Abbey and you have this like, idea of what kings are like. And you know, they have these servants that come do all their stuff and wash their clothes. I don't know if that guy was a king. But um, we've got movies and books that have kind of shaped. And usually the things about these things is um, these particular kings and these movies or whatever, they kind of rule and reign over just a region. An area, a small area. And after that, there's another one over here. And so what we're going to see about this picture that's going to be showing of our king is he doesn't rule over small little segments. He rules over the whole universe. Everything that's been created, he rules and reigns over. And so we're going to see an amazing picture of our king, Jesus. And so we're going into, in verse 21, what's known as the, the, the king's humble entrance into his final week. Now, um, Easter is in two weeks, and so we didn't time this out perfectly. Actually, it would have been perfect if this sermon was next week, because next week is Palm Sunday, and that's, that's what we're going to see. This is Palm Sunday. So we, we, we're a week off, but, you know, we started Matthew, like, what, um, two years ago? So it's pretty amazing that we got within one week. So um, that's all God anyway. Um, so what we're seeing here is really Palm Sunday, which really starts next week. Um, but I want you to think about this. This particular week that's about to happen, that we're going to start studying, is one of the most important weeks in the life of Christ. Think about your your life. What was the most important thus far, and maybe it's pending, the most important week of your life? Um, Maybe it's, for college students, it's like (laughs) this coming end of the semester where I'm either going to fail out of college and have to tell my parents I didn't go to class this whole semester, or, um, you know, or I don't know, maybe you... you can remember back to that week where you met that, that girl or that guy, like, oh, that was the most important. The day we met and that week where we fell in love with one another, that was just, and hopefully if they're beside you, you're like, that was one of them. That was top one, no, no question. Um, maybe you just, some of our missionaries just finished a week of missions. They might say, this could be, that could have been, without a doubt, the most important week of my life. God did some things in my heart this particular week that were just life-transforming. I think we can all look at our lives and say, there was a, there was a pretty important week in my life. Maybe it's about to come. Maybe you haven't had an important week, and, and it's coming. Um, but my point is this. <clears throat> As I'm looking at commentators, they say not only was this the most important week of Jesus' life, which... Let's just face it, he had some pretty awesome stuff. One week with him would have been our most like, impressive week ever. He did some crazy stuff. This is not only, they say, the commentators, not, the most, not just the most important week of his life, but the most important week of human history. There's never been a more important week of all human history than this week that we're going to enter into right now. So much so, Matthew, in this tome he's written of 28 chapters, the last quarter of his book is all about this week. John, um, the last half of his book, is about this week. And so the gospel writers, just in the fact that they, the, the most of their material is about this particular week, this week that we're entering into as the, the Palm Sunday to the uh, Resurrection Sunday is the most important week of human history. And so this, this 2017 where it says Jesus is going to Jerusalem and this 21 one it says he's drawing near to Jerusalem this is a striking turn that the gospel writers really want us to key in on and understand this is this is a big difference in that let me give you just one small example right before we're going into Jerusalem in 21 one you'll notice in that previous little pericope or section of scripture in 20 29 through 34 Jesus just healed two blind men Well, previously he healed two blind men in Matthew 9. And when he did, right whenever he healed those two blind men, he looked at everybody around that happened and he said, it says in Matthew 9, Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. Matthew 9, 31. Here, there's no warning. Where Jesus is basically saying here, everything's out in the open now. I am going to, without a doubt, let everybody know who I am. That I am the king of Jerusalem and I am the king of the universe. So there's no more 
quote-unquote messianic secret where he keeps telling them it's not time, don't tell, don't tell, it's not time. He wants everyone to know who he is here. Um, Matthew, I'm sorry, James Boyce, as he's writing about this particular section, says that Matthew, um, the gospel writer, has now presented to us Jesus as God's king. And so that's what we're going to look at today, are eight attributes of this king. And as I said, some of these things are going to be for us uh, review. But what I'm hoping happens for us is that as we observe and see these attributes, that we would be astounded at some of these attributes of our king. So much so that it would be breathtaking, awe-inspiring, and life-transforming for us. I mean, he could have entered into this, um, this, this quote-unquote humble entrance. could have happened any number of ways. And yet he chose to get on a donkey and ride it in. So there's a, a, a very humbling ha- thing happening here. But just because it's so humble in picture, n- in no way diminishes... <laughs> The huge display of importance that's going on. So verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. So they're not in yet. And it says, then Jesus sent to the two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you'll find a donkey and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. And so the first thing I want you to see here, there's a designation here as he's given these disciples this really bizarre instructions. If you're one of these disciples, you're like, wait a second, what now? You, sounds like stealing, Jesus. Are you telling me to go steal? Go over to Joe Blow, the animal guy. Hey, Joe Blow, I want to take your colt and your thing. And he's, just, he's not going to want to say, who are you and why are you taking my junk? He's just going to say, we're supposed to say, the Lord. Imagine if you did this. You go to a guy that has animals and you say, I need your animals. Why? The Lord wants them. Uh, what are they going to say to you? Is, that's the answer you want me to give? And you're like, yeah, that's the answer I want you to give. Just tell them the Lord wants them. And amazingly enough here, he says the Lord wants them. And we're going to see here that, you know, Joe Blow's just going to say, yeah, take them. They're yours. The Lord wants them. What, my point that I want to drill down into is in this verse 3, the designated word that Christ calls himself. He says, if they ask, tell them the Lord. In Greek, kurios. Now, Lord in Greek, kurios, in Hebrew is Yahweh. This is a clear, I mean, Jesus, as I said, this turning point is so striking. No holds barred. He wants everybody to know who he is. He's going to call himself Lord here. The God, Yahweh, the Exodus 3.14, I am, without question, I am the Lord, the kurios, the Yahweh. And so here we're going to see the first designation, the first attribute is that Jesus is our divine king. Yes, he was human, but this is signaling to them that he is absolutely divine as well, meaning God. He is claiming without question here to be God. He is a king, but he is God the king. So which means he rules and reigns over everything. So it doesn't seem so bizarre that if someone who rules and reigns over the entire universe and upholds the universe by the word of its power, and if anything happens in any detail of all of the created order in your life and my life and all of time, if anything happens, it's because his sovereign hand is bringing it about. So when he tells the disciples to go get a colt, they're going to be there. And the guy's going to absolutely say, yes, you should take them. They're the Lord's. Because this is how sovereign our divine king is. The ruler and reigner over everything. When this happens, he says it's going to happen. It's going to happen just like that. So we see here, as we're going through here, he says, the Lord needs them. And it says in verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying. And then it says, say to the daughter of Zion. That little say to the daughter of Zion comes from Isaiah 60 to 11. And then we have another prophecy right here. following where it says behold your king this behold your king is a quote from zechariah zechariah however you say it nine nine um zechariah nine nine and let's read it it says behold your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt the foal of a beast of burden now this is just one prophecy of so many in the old testament that jesus is fulfilling But in this particular text, what I want us to see, that Jesus, number one, is not just our divine king, but number two, Jesus is our prophesied king. 
There has been time and time again, over in the Old Testament, it, um, this is over here, by the way, the Old Testament. And so I'm standing in the Old Testament now, and I'm a participant of the Old Testament standing here. And so there's been time and time again since Genesis 3, where Jesus says, I'm going to crush the head of the serpent, what's known as the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. Time and time again, that creation, since, since um, the fall happened, all of us have been kind of looking forward. I'm in the Old Testament, looking forward, saying, creation isn't right. I, don't, I know that I'm separated. I don't have this right standing with God. All around creation, there's death, there's destruction, there's mayhem and terror. Nothing's right. And we have this groaning. We have this longing. We have this awareness that something's not right. And there's these scriptures of the Old Testament that are written. And they're all promising this man that's going to come. They're over and over telling us this man's going to come. And I'm so aware that everything's not right. But there's this man that's going to come. He's supposed to come. And then here comes Christ. And he fulfills all these prophecies, all these promises of God about this man that's going to come and just completely redeem all of this groaning of creation and our hearts and our souls back to God. And so all of these prophecies, if we look at it, Christ has fulfilled all of them. The the possibility that one man in one particular time period could have actually fulfilled every prophecy of the Old Testament, the, the likelihood is so astronomical. And yet this man, Jesus, did He is the prophesied king, the one that has been told of us of old, all throughout our Old Testament scriptures, that is going to bring order and redemption back to us individually and to all of creation. No more cancer in heaven. No more murder in heaven. No more all the things that the fall brought in. He's the prophesied king. Now, we see here in Matthew 21.5 that that prophecy that's been told it's where we can see he's the prophesied king. Um, but as Matthew wrote, uh, carried along by the Holy Spirit in 21.5, he didn't quote all of Zechariah 9.9, which is not a big deal. They, the writers are free to do that. But what I want to do for us is let's look at all of Zechariah 9.9 because there's a couple more attributes of our king that we're going to see that are just awesome. So here's Zechariah 9.9. You can see it behind me. It says this. Um, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. He is humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So here we can see it. Now there's two underlines, and those are our next two. The first thing I want you to see here is, or the third one that I want you to see, the first one in Zechariah 9.9, the, the third one overall uh, attribute of our king is that he is the righteous king. He is the righteous king. And this, this is so huge to get a grasp on. This is what will help us all be able to sleep at night whenever we know that we are fully and rightly restored to our God because of he has di- he's died for us. So whenever he tells us that he's the righteous king, whenever we come to know Christ, we, we, we trust him that his death on the cross was for us and we, we ask forgiveness of our sins and we ask him to forgive us. And in that moment when we trust, when we put our faith, he declares us righteous. He declares us completely innocent, completely holy. The only person that can do that is God himself. Uh, if I called you righteous, it would mean zero. Like my declaration of you of being righteous or any man's declaration of you being righteous is nothing. It means nothing. The only person that can declare you righteous, holy, completely innocent, is someone that is righteous, completely and holy. So our salvation, the fact that we are now declared righteous, hinges on or gives us complete understanding and, and, and hope that if Christ is our righteous king and he declares you righteous, now Romans 8, 1, where we know that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, is a precious promise that we can absolutely trust because we are in Christ Jesus, our righteous king. So this, <laughs> this attribute of Jesus being our righteous king is just awe-inspiring and breathtaking. Because it means we are as well. Now here's the next one. This one's awesome as well. It says up there um, that he's also having salvation. Having salvation. Let me show you something else where we're, we're seeing that Jesus is one who has salvation and is able to extend it to us. He's our, this is our fourth attribute. He is our savior king. 
He has salvation. He's our Savior King. And I spelt it with the U on purpose because that's the cool way to spell it. So it, I like that British version of Savior King. If you that don't leave out, don't put in the U, whatever. But I think it's cooler with the U. Um, so we see there that there's two verses for Savior King, Zechariah 9.9 9, and also in Matthew 21.9. Let me, let me read to you Matthew 21.9. It says this. Um, and the crowds that went before him shouting, so we know that he's entering the city. And all of a sudden they start shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the, in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And I, I want to sing Hosanna to y'all, but I'm not going to. Um, but this Hosanna means um, literally, oh, save. So there's a, a, a declaration of the heart of the word Hosanna. I need salvation. But there's also coupled with that, um, this word Hosanna, Uh, an admiration and an understanding that only you can do it. I know that I need it, and the only person that can do it is you. So they're screaming out, Oh, save us, son of David. We need it, and only you can do it. You're the only one that can extend to us salvation. Hosanna to you in the highest. So we see here um, in Zechariah 9.9 and Matthew 21.9, and even later on uh, in verse 15, where they're saying, Hosanna, they're telling us that our Lord saves. He is the Savior King. He saves us from death. He saves us from Satan. He saves us from ourselves. He's our Savior King. As a matter of fact, I would say that he loves to save. He loves to save. Let me read just a couple texts that will, um, and maybe these are familiar, that just demonstrate to us the love that Jesus has to save. This is 1 Timothy 2, uh, and starting at verse 3, it says, This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of our God of our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. He loves for people to be saved. 2 Peter 3.9 says this. The context of 2 Peter 3.9 is saying, um, well, there should be a return of Jesus. This second, this second coming of Jesus is supposed to come. We, we look back, as we looked in the Old Testament, we see sin entered the world, and there's this groaning, this awareness of the creation having this fall, this huge mar, and everybody, we know we live under the curse of sin, and every single one of us has a huge longing to not be here on earth and be here anymore. Jesus, you can come any moment and restore all things and usher us into the kingdom, and it'll all finally be over. Why aren't you coming? Come now. Won't you come now? In Second Peter, in that context, why doesn't Jesus just come now and end it all? The reason why is because he loves to save. He loves to save. Him not coming means there's opportunity for more people to come to know him. That's, that's what it says here in Second Timothy 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise to finally come, that second coming, as slow some, as some um, as some count slowness, but is patient, meaning he's withholding that second coming, Toward you, not wishing that people would perish and that all would reach repentance. The reason why he hasn't come back is he loves to save. He's the Savior King. This is great news for us. And if you don't know Christ, if you have been living a life that's away from God, know this Jesus loves to save, and you can put your trust in him right now and be forgiven. He loves to save those that don't know him. And so, back over to the text. Uh, We're starting at verse 6. And the disciples went and did as as Jesus directed them. Now, let's just a little side passing, I think, application for us. What seems crazy for us if God tells us to do it? Hey, uh, guys, go steal some animals and just tell them God needs it. I mean, that's not what he said, but that's what it feels like at least. Um, Simple obedience. God said, do this. I'm going to do it. Now, I don't think God's going to direct you to sin, and I don't think they're sinning. Um, But it says, the disciples went and did as Jesus directed. How awesome, and this is, I mean, this is not just for you, this is for me. Would it be if we we know we're supposed to do something, that we go and we do as God directs us? Just simple obedience. In verse 7, they brought the donkey and the colt. Matthew's the only one, I don't know why, but Matthew's the only gospel writer that mentions both animals. The rest of them just mention one. And put their cloaks on the animals and he sat on them. I don't think he sat on both animals. That would be insane. He sat on the cloaks. The them points to the, to the cloaks, not to the animals. Um, 
And here we see in verse 8, it says, Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches of the trees and, and spread them on the road. So here we have what is where we get our, 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 our uh, idea from Palm Sunday. Here they have their palms, and this is the entrance of the humble king, and so they have the palms. Um, we're, we've decided not to have big palm branches here let next week all on stage and wave them all around. We, we were going, no, we weren't even going to, but um, my point is, this is pretty awesome. Uh, I'm going to read a Spurgeon quote, but Spurgeon seeing this spreading of the cloaks and calling those clothes and saying these cut branches. Spurgeon's reading this verse 8 about them having cloaks and branches, and he says this. You just got to get some Spurgeon books. They are so, he is so good. He says this. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, in their shame made clothes of the leaves of trees, but now both clothes and leaves are at the feet of man's redeemer. I mean, what, what a change that's happened where Christ is now coming to save and just a, a, a huge change of what God has done over history to be the Savior King. Um, now, I want to go right back to verse 5. I, I accidentally skipped one. I want to go back to verse 5 and show you one other thing inside the quote of verse 5. Verse 5, it says, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. This humble is where I want to show you the fifth attribute of God. It says this, that he is... The humble king. He is the humble king. Verse 7 tells us um, when he got this donkey in this colt, he sat on him. There's a lot going on when he literally sits down on this particular animal and rides it in. Number one, um, just to kind of highlight uh, maybe a first level of the humility of Christ. Um, I was reading and, and the commentator said that this is the only occasion in the Bible that we hear of Jesus doing anything but walking. Jesus walked everywhere. There were not times where he hopped on, he thought he was too good, and he needed to go. Besides being in the stomach of his mother, going where she rode the animal more than likely, this is the only time that we see Jesus. And so that's signaling to us something important. He's, he's so humble that he walks everywhere. All the time, and here, he's going to ride. Now, when he's going to ride, the, the one occasion that he's going to ride on an animal, he gets on a donkey. I mean, a donkey, not a horse. Now, let's contrast this a little bit. And let's, I think the contrast of this will really paint the picture of the amazing humility that Jesus has. Because he could have ridden on something else. He could have gotten his powerful steed to come out and ride in on and set up a big kingdom there. And let me, let me give you a picture of there will be one day when this happens. And let's just look at Matthew uh, 21 where he's getting on a donkey and people are just putting some coat, cloaks and some, some trees in front of him compared to this display. Both are showing us a ki- his kingship. One showing humility. And listen to this. This is this is so awesome. Then I saw, this is the, the next time where he'll reveal himself as king and enter into the, um, the time where he's going to reveal himself as the king. Look at these two pictures. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and one sing out, sitting on it called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, um, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flames of fire, and on his head ha- are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven were arrayed in fine linen and white and pure, were all following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword which to strike down the nations, and he will rule over all of them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thighs, all tatted up here, it says, he has the name written, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now contrast that with this humble entrance of getting on a donkey and riding in. Now don't miss this. This is the most important thing. This first entrance, if he desired, could have been like that other entrance that's coming. Could have been. But he didn't do it that way. He could have just chosen just to do that and let that be the only one. But his humility says that's coming, but not this time. I want to come as the humble king and enter into a city where I'm going to willingly go die for my people. I could have that, and I will one day. 
Well, when I see those two particular pictures, the humility of the, of the King Jesus that's willing to do that, that's the kind of man I will follow anywhere. That just makes me want to say, yes, Jesus, amen, wherever you want to go, I will follow you anywhere. When Jesus calls you to come follow him, this picture of this humble God, there's no fear in following this humble, loving king. There's, there's a sense of awe, of reverent fear. But, wow, what a picture of a humble king that we follow. And I think that we would all say, I'll follow this guy anywhere. So in the first level, he's actually where he walks everywhere, finally gets on thing. And the second picture contrasted to Revelation 19, he's just showing to us that he is our humble king. And you see in verse 9, they're all going to start yelling out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, I want to key in on Hosanna to the son of David. Son of David is showing us all that David was once the king of Israel. Now, Matthew doesn't include one little phrase in there, but John does. And as John's recording this, this story, um, John twelve thirteen, John includes where he says, Hosanna to the son of David. John says, the king of Israel. And so there's another attribute of our king that we're going to see here. The king of Israel is just showing that David was the king of Israel, but John wants us to definitely not miss it, because David was the king of Israel, that Jesus is the king of Israel. Now, this whole study of Matthew, Matthew's written to people who are Jewish, so this whole study of Matthew is helping us see that Jesus is the king of the Jews, and we've, we've entitled it Messiah, because as we've said over and over, there's been prophecies of this, of this guy, but We want to talk about this, not just the prophecies, but the actual guy, this Messiah. Who is he? And Matthew, I'm sorry, Matthew and John are both telling us that he is the son of David. He is the king of Israel. So the sixth thing, the sixth attribute of our king is that Jesus is our messianic king. That promised one over and over. The Messiah that is to come to redeem everything or in the New Testament, as it says, the Christ. It's just the same word as Messiah. It's not like his last name. His name's not Jesus Christ, like first and last name. His name is Jesus, and he is the Christ, the Messiah. He is our messianic king. The promised Christ that would come and redeem everything. And it says here in verse 10, um, and I, I don't want you to breeze past this part of the narrative because I think this is extraordinary. Verse 10. And when, these next three words, he entered Jerusalem. Now, I've already, hopefully, ad nauseum, um, shown us what the city means. It's not just another destination as he's on ministry. This is his destiny to die. And up until then, 2017, 21-1, he's drawing near. He's turning his face towards it. But in this particular moment, this, you know, if there's the line in the, the proverbial line in the sand, this is it. This is where Jesus, we, we don't want to just blow past these three words in, 20, in verse 10 and not feel the weight where Jesus in these moments and when he entered Jerusalem, signaling, Lord, you've given me, Father, you've given me a task to do. And I love, Jesus loves the Father, he loves the glory of the Father, and he loves us, that he's willing to, as he says, enter into Jerusalem. And be obedient to the will of the Father to go and die for us. And so, as we see this, I want us to ask, why would he, quote unquote, cross that proverbial line? Be obedient to note, I'm going to death. I'm going to die for sure. We know that it scared him when we see in the garden in Luke where it says he he sweat drops of blood right the night before he was going to die. We know that it was caused in his humanity levels of anxiety that were off the charts. But yet he still does it. What causes this man, God-man, to say yes? And I think it's our seventh attribute, seventh attribute is that he is the loving king. He loves the Father. He loves the glory of God. And he loves us so much that he would be willing to. To do it. As a matter of fact, just to give us a little bit of a highlight of the love that he has for these particular people, Luke actually records something that's just kind of only found in Luke. 
as he's right before he enters into the city, in Luke 19, verse 41, as he's drawing near, he's still in that drawing near phase, he looks at Jerusalem, and um, in his humanity, or I should say this, in his divinity, he knew this moment was coming for all time. It wasn't like, oh, this is where I'm finally going into Jerusalem. That's right. This is the part of the story. Maybe I remember it. From all time, he always knew that this was going. But now in his humanity, he's entering into the experience of entering into Jerusalem. And there's a rush of, in his humanity, emotions, knowing who he is, that what he's about to do. And he looks at Jerusalem, which is the, the symbol, symbol of, this is the people of God. This is their city. I love the people of God so much. In verse 41, it says, and he drew near to the city. And when he saw it, it says, he wept over the city of Jerusalem. Showing us just how much he loves the people of God. Saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. I mean, there's just amazing, overwhelming, emotional love coming for him. That I think that's going on when he says he enters Jerusalem. He enters Jerusalem. That he is showing us that he is our loving king. He loves the glory of God. And he loves people. So much, the, the people of God so much that he's willing to go to them and die for them. Now, I want to take a side note here. Keying in on love for people, causing us to do something um, for the Lord, being obedient to the will of the Lord, and say, Jesus is the one that gives us the strength to do that. Here's an example of a person that has done it. Now, this is not about this person. It's about Jesus. But this is an example of a person. I think hearing these stories um, help us whenever the Lord tells us to do something to go do it. Now, being what day it is, I thought it would be appropriate to have our example be St. Patrick. So, and this guy is awesome. I'm not, this guy is so awesome. Um, he was English. He was an English aristocrat, which means he, he lived in the, kind of the upper echelons of society, had lots of money. Um, and it says around age 16, he had been catechized his entire childhood, which just means he had been taught the things of the Lord. He hadn't become a Christian. He knew of Christianity. He had been catechized. But it says that he lived quite an ungoverned youth and lived on the wild side. And at age 16, as he's living this ungoverned youth, Celtic pirates from Ireland came in, captured Patrick, took him back to Ireland, sold him into slavery, and he became a cattle farmer, which uh, a cattle herder, I should say. Not the best transition in life. English aristocrat, slave in Ireland with cattle. That's where, and remember, this was around 400 AD. Not a very civilized society. If Celtic pirates capture you one day, it's not a good day at all. It's not like a, oh, a little vacation on the seas with, with you know, the guy from Pirates of the Caribbean. No, it's brutal. You're not going to have fun with Johnny Depp on this. Um, and so he's over here. He's a, he's a slave. He doesn't have choices. And he's out in the fields herding cattle. And needless to say, extremely unhappy. Three things happen to, pa- to Patrick while he's there. Number one, as he's out in the fields all the time, natural revelation, this Romans 1, all of creation revealing itself that there is a God is happening, but he's also remembering the catechisms of his childhood, and he's piecing it all together. The first thing that happened is, and so don't, don't neglect, if you have small children, the importance of teaching your children the things of God. They, they come back, and for Patrick, all that culminated into a, a desperate situation, Special or, or general revelation, natural revelation, special revelation, the catechisms of, and he met Christ. He met Christ, and we don't know the, the intricacies of the depths of it, not lots of writings, but he met Jesus somehow as this slave to Ireland, as an Englishman. Second thing is, as he was there, he began to start understanding the Irish culture, their language and their culture. And there's a little quote, I want you to hear this, because um, this quote is going to help us as Christians understand how we're to be on mission. Listen to what he says. There's, there's, he says, there's no shortcut into understanding people. You want to be on mission? You've got to understand people that aren't like you. You've got to. He says, there's no shortcut into understanding people. When you understand the people, you will often, you will often know what to say and what to do and how to do it when you understand them. Um, when the people know that Christians understand them, they infer that also maybe the high God understands them too. So 
First thing is he got saved. The second thing is he started understanding the people. And as he understood their language, their culture, and all these things about him, a third thing happened that he did. I don't think he planned on at all. Is And this is taking off that loving king. He, became, he came to love his captors. He loved the people that enslaved him. They brought him against his will and made him a slave. And he began to, as he understood them, love the people that enslaved him and hoped and prayed for their reconciliation to God. Now, it says that after being there about six years, around age 22, uh, he had a dream of some sorts. We don't know all the details, but it said there's going to be a ship out there next day. You need to go out there if you want to get out of here. And so there was a ship, and he finagled himself on the ship, and he escaped, and he went back to England. And as soon as he got back to England, um, he entered into the ministry, an equivalent of our seminaries, if you will, where he immersed his mind in the scriptures, and he began working in ministry for 26 years in England. So now we're at about age 48. He's only been in Ireland for six years. At age 48, where most men, um, that was kind of their life expectancy. They, they mostly started dying at age 48. He felt a call at age 48 for those people that he understood and loved. He, he had a, a training ground, if you will. A pretty extended training ground um, for 22, or, uh, 22 years. I'm sorry, 26 years. But at age 48, he feels this call, by the way. It was in the form of a dream, but... Whatever. Um, it came in the form of a dream, and he, equivo- he equivocated this call that he had, this dream, to Paul's Macedonian call. And he says um, that now he's going to go back over to Ireland. Now remember, barbarians lived there. They were completely uncivilized there. They, this was not a civilized society like we have now. Barbarians, pagans, Celtic pirates lived there. And he feels this call to go back over there and to evangelize these particular people. And they say this, there's a quote, it says, Patrick's mission to Ireland was an unprecedented undertaking. It's only 400. Um, But this was because he was going to convert barbarians, uncivilized barbarians who knew nothing of Christ. Not only was it unprecedented, but assumed absolutely impossible. Well, he went anyway. He went anyway at age 48. He took about a dozen people with him over to Ireland to be a missionary to the Irish for what would be probably the rest of his life. Uh, scant writings, and it says this. This is, I mean, this, is the, this was their game plan, all right? This is so easy to do, to be on mission for us. Um, maybe not the first part, but the rest, yes. The first part is he engaged the king, which, you know, maybe we can't do that. He engaged the king, but other leaders, hoping for their conversion. And then after that, as people sent on mission, this is what they did. They met people. They engaged people in conversation and in ministry. They looked to see if people re- were receptive to the gospel. And as they were meeting, their, they prayed for the sick. They counseled people and they mediated conflicts. We can do that. This, this is no huge plan. This is go be a Christian where pagans are. That's it. Well, Converts would come and many church plants would come in the 28 years or so that he was there. He was there for, on mission for about 20 years, so at, age, at age 76 now in ministry, far beyond life expectancy. At age 76, um, going to this pagan nation where he was criticized for fraternizing with pagans and sinners, which sounds very familiar, right? Pharisees, Jesus. Um, how can you go over there as an Englishman to those pagans? Um, because they need Jesus, that's why. And so it says this. This is so awesome. He probably baptized tens of thousands of people. He planted around 700 churches, probably ordained 1,000 men or so into ministry. And as he went, at this particular time, there was about 150 unreached people groups. He probably reached at least 40 out of the 150, a third of the unreached people groups in this particular region in Ireland. This is the quote. It says, he won so many of them for Christ. He founded so many churches. He ordained so many clerics. He kindled such a zeal in men's hearts that it seems right to believe that to him was directly, outside of Jesus, directly him, directly do the wonderful outblossoming of Christianity which distinguished Ireland in all the following years. This guy's a stud. I mean, amazing. And this is what he writes afterwards. This is what he writes. When writing why he did what he did, this is what he said. God wants men to be reborn in God. 
He, he uses reborn in God language to talk about salvation. The John 3 language. God wants men to be reborn in God and redeemed from the ends of the earth. He wants the church to fish well and spread our nets far so that we can catch a great multitude for God. The church is to go into all the world Preach the gospel to all creation, teach all nations, and make people children of the living God. And this is where he he finished. This is so awesome. God gave me such a grace that many people through me were reborn to God. So he looks back at all the things and he said, he says, This loving king gave me such a grace to be used by him to go and be a missionary to those very people that enslaved me. He gave me the, the, uh, the ability to understand them, the ability to love them. He saved me and he gave me such, he calls it a grace to be able to go and be a missionary to my captors. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. And all of it comes from our loving king. Now I know I talked about Patrick a little while, but let's remember it's not about Patrick. It's about the such of grace God, King Jesus, that gives him that. And he is our loving king, and he has the ability to give us this same grace that he gives Patrick to go live our lives on mission and see who knows how many people meet Jesus, even at what would be the end of our quote-unquote life expectancy. 48 back then had to be like 150, right? So, probably not, but... um, the seventh thing we saw was the loving king. Now, I want to uh, read through, and we're going to get to this last one. Verse 10, it says, When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. This, this little stirred up language in uh, Matthew, a little book in stirred up to uh, Matthew 2, where there's a stirring because the, the baby was about to be born. Matthew's kind of bookending that for us. Lots of what they call those in, in the theological, uh, theological word, inclusios. That doesn't mean anything, but it just means bookends. But the writers love to do these little things, showing to us the importance of things. If we're, you know, have the smart guys tell us, because I don't know those things, uh, the commentators. So he goes in there, the whole city stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from the um, Na- Nazareth of Galilee. Now he's not just our prophet here. He's clearly also the king of the universe. And verse 12 it says, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons and he said to them and I think pretty with a lot of strength he said to them it is written my house shall not be called a house of prayer but you make it my house I'm sorry shall be called a house of prayer that was bad but you but you make it a den of robbers and I think that all of us like we love this particular Jesus right if somebody starts talking about our soft-spoken wimpy Jesus we point to Revelation 19 we point to this one we're like Jesus will mess you up he'll get up in your junk and mess you up we love this big huge awesome Jesus but before we get kind of hyped up and get like that's my Jesus I want to ask why let's ask why why is he doing this I don't think he's just trying to go crazy there's something going on here where he wants everybody to understand this is wrong. This is really wrong. Now, if you'll notice with me, um, in the very end of 13, he says, you make it a, quote, den of robbers. A den of robbers. That is a direct quote from Jeremiah 7, 11. Jeremiah 7, 11. In the context, you don't need to turn. I'll just tell you really fast what's going on. The context of Jeremiah 7 um, is that um, he's quoting there, where these particular people, you see this in the outset of the chapter at verse 2, they're supposed to come and worship God. Jeremiah seven eleven says, uh, Has this house which is called by name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I have seen it, declares the Lord. So at the outset of this chapter, verse 2 tells us all that they're supposed to come and worship God. But instead of coming to worship God, or when they come to worship God, when they're not there... If you keep reading, it says, but instead they go out throughout all the land. And in verse 8 tells us, or 9 tells us, that they steal, they murder, they commit adultery, and they lie. It also tells us in verse 5 that they're oppressive to the poor. There's widows and people around them. They oppress them. They care nothing about them. And so they're coming. And and verse 10 tells us that all of this is an abominance. 
And so, because you're supposed to be coming to worship, but when you're not here, you're oppressing the poor, you're living lives of adultery, basically living lives of huge sin. He says that all of this is an abominance. And Jesus, will ab- God in, in, in Jeremiah 7, and in this context right here, Jesus and God will not have it. Jesus and God is going to deal with your sin. He's not going to let you just act like your sin and your life does not exist. That's what's going on in Jeremiah 7, and that's what's going on for us right now. He will not have us come in and act like we're going to worship God here, but while we're out, not walk with God. So here's the last thing I want us to see about our our king. He is the holy king. He demands for us to be holy. Now, he provides it. But let's not diminish the fact that he still demands for us to be holy. And he will not have us Come in to worship God, but not walk with God. That's what was going on in this particular place. Jesus, our holy king, came to cleanse and purify and overturn this hideout for criminals where they were coming. We love it that he turns over not only the tables, but he even overturns their stools. Like, get those stools out of here. And he cleanses and drives out this temple. Now, he takes what is known as a hideout for criminals against God and restores it to the house of prayer before God. Jesus is then demonstrating to us that he's the holy king that does not deal with sin lightly, but instead, all of sin by God is always dealt with righteous, burning anger. That's what's going on here, and that's what's going to happen on the cross. Now, here's where it gets really good. This is, uh, we're going to talk about the gospel, by the way, and this is some good news here. All right, so this, this picture that's happening right here for us in Matthew 21, verse 12 and 13, here's the really good news. God deals with sin in a definite, righteous, anger way, but on the cross, God has already dealt with sin, not lightly, but with righteous anger. And instead of these criminals, we are the criminals, and God has now come and taken the place of the criminals on the cross. And now, just like he cleansed and purified the temple, we, as we trust Christ, are cleansed and purified. And so as we come to this particular place, it's not a den of robbers. It's not a hideout for criminals. Instead, um, all people who are sinners are now come and beckoned to come to this particular place and come freely and drink freely of this great gospel, this great good news that Jesus Christ now has taken all the punishment for us. This isn't a hideout for criminals. This is an invitation to the criminals to come now and drink deeply of this great gospel where we see in Matthew chapter 11 where he, Jesus extends this beautiful gospel invitation to those that are criminals and wicked and tired and sins weighing down. He says, come. Come to me, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus, our holy king, does deal with sin very vehemently but God has done it now for Christ on, the, on, on Christ for us on the cross. And just like the temple was cleansed, we who are the good news are in Christ are pure and holy and cleansed. That's, that's an amazing holy king that's worth worshiping. So we've seen many attributes of our king here. But what are we supposed to do? Like what do we do? I've seen those things and I want to be awe-inspired and I want my breath to be taken away by Christ. And maybe by the power of the Spirit that's happening in your life right now as we've seen, I mean, this humility, the contrast of a donkey and a horse in Revelation 19. And we see this passion against sin, but he he willingly becomes the sacrifice for us. And all the other attributes. What are we supposed to do? What are, some, what are some things in the text that we know that we can do if we're finding ourselves awe-inspired? If we're finding our breath being taken by this beautiful king? Just a couple things. Let me show them to you. First one, we need to give him praise. We need to give him praise. We see it right there in verse 9. Hosanna. This is an outcry of praise to him. Hosanna to the son of David. We can also see it right there. Uh, In 15 and 16, where we see these children, they're crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. And the kings and scribes 
and the chief priests are like, tell the kids to be quiet. They're all mad. And Jesus tells them, this is, don't you know, haven't you ever read, when Jesus tells chiefs, uh, chief priests and scribes, haven't you ever read, it's, kind of, it's always a little dig at them because you know they have and they just are missing it. He says, out of the mouths and infants and nursing ba- babes, you have prepared praise. It doesn't mean that they're really like prepared, like they got their stuff together. It means it's ordained. Ordained praise. And so in these moments, one of the things that we know that we can do is immediately we're going to have a chance to respond. There is ordained or prepared praise for you right now to stand and worship Christ. And as Ephesians 2.10 says, there's ordained or prepared praise for you to go out from these walls and, and do good works to your fellow man. There's ordained and prepared lifestyle worship praise for you to go out and do right now. So that's the first thing. The second thing that we can do is right there in verse 13. My house shall be called a house of prayer. We need to make prayer a priority. We must pray. It's, I think it might be even scary, the lack of prayer in the lives of the saints. If we all got honest and got to the side and we, we say, hey, do you pray enough? Do you, do you spend a lot of time in prayer? I think we'd all say, not even close. We shouldn't neglect this amazing gift that God has given us to commune with him constantly throughout the day in prayer. When I was reading about uh, St. Patrick, when he was out in the, in the cow fields, it says that he would find himself praying all throughout the day, sometimes like 500 to 1,000 times per day in prayer. We, we need to make prayer a priority in our lives. And regard to everything, asking for help, asking for killing sin, asking to be on mission. I mean, there's, there's so many things. Asking, petitioning for even our own lives. Heal me, save my father. Help me have a right relationship with that particular person. Help me be a better dad. Help me be a better husband. Help me be a better wife. There's, there's so many opportunities available. And don't miss, prayer changes things. I'm a firm believer in the sovereignty of God, but God has ordained prayers that when we pray, they change things. And things won't change if you don't pray. Don't neglect prayer. The third thing that we can do is this. Um, As we're reading through, it seems like there's a verse that's just randomly thrown in. We see, he says there should be a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And then it seems like we should just go straight to 15 where it says the chief priests and are mad at children. But we see this little 14 kind of stuck there. And we're like, why is that there? It says, and when the blind and lame came, he healed them in the temple, uh, into the temple, he healed them. Chief priests and scribes saw the things that were going on and they got mad at the kids. What's the point of 14? Why is 14 kind of stuck in there? It does, it's not random. It's actually for us contrasting Jeremiah 7, where they were oppressing the needy, the widows, the orphans, the outcasts of society. Jesus invites them into the temple, and as he does it, he heals the blind and the lame. He's doing exactly what they were supposed to be doing. And so spiritually, there's something that we can see. Let me read. Uh, well, we need to be spiritually healed by him, is, is the third thing. So if you're not in Jesus, you know that you're not a Christian. He's beckoning you to come in, and just like these people were healed physically, he's saying, come in and be healed spiritually. I'm extending this great gospel call to you to come to me. Everyone, freely, come and receive all the forgiveness in Christ because he's bore your penalty on the cross. Spurgeon, as he's reading this, this, oh, this is so good. He says, we too came into the assembly of the saints at one time, just like them. We came into the temple, spiritually blind and lame. But Jesus opened our eyes and he healed our lameness. If he sees anything amiss in us right now, if he sees any sin in your life right now, Christian, surely, we are sure, he will not drive us away from his courts. He heal us at once. Let us all come to him now. That's what we do. If we're outside of Christ, we come and we be healed. We, we get healed spiritually. If we're in Christ, we continually come and remind of the forever as his children. 
the feet of our king. What a beautiful picture of this king we have. And there's right now prepared praise for you. Immediately in corporate worship through song and as you leave. And so I just want to ask you as the Holy Spirit comes now and reveals these acts of prepared praise, would you submit yourself over to them? Maybe you need to think and pray for a little while. We're going to have a, a time of response where we can stand and sing or maybe you just need to sit and pray. Whatever it is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray now and Ben's going to lead us through a time of worship where we trust the Holy Spirit to do His work in your life. Let's pray. God, I'm completely aware of my inadequacies. And there's no way that I can just talk here and the desires of my soul happen. I I want that we are completely enamored and all inspired of this picture of the king to happen in my own heart and all all of my friends here. I can't make that happen. Only you can do that. It's your kindness that reveals who you are to us that leads us to repentance. So would you come now and grant that kindness to us? We're desperate for your presence. And would you bring about these